Hello and welcome to the first ever AIQ podcast. This is a podcast based on what happens in the classical world and finding out what we want to know. We are going to be questioning ancient history, literature and archaeological finds to get a better understanding of the ancient world as a whole. Now the reason this podcast exists is because I believe that there is not enough mediums out there where people can easily access academia, specifically through the classics. It seems you have to either go through the traditional way of further education and long, long hours in a big institution, which is costing a lot of money, or you, you buy really in-depth books where you decipher through a lot of jargon to understand the topics that are going on in the world. I hope in this podcast to breach a gap between the two so you can understand from a basic point of view what's going on in the world of classics and what bits are interesting but also so you can get an idea of what academics are talking about and where the debate currently is in society and in the world. So my name is Alex Goodman and I'm currently in my second year of doing a two years masters in ancient history at the University of Wales Trinity St David. My goal for this is for my BA and my MA all the information that I've gathered and everything I've learned, I want to put it in a nice, coherent way for you guys back home to learn in the comfort of your own home or wherever you are. So a lot of you are probably wondering what the classics is and what 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 time period does it do? Where is it and who is it, right? So the classics are quite small in scope compared to other topics. It's at a very specific location in the world. It's looking at the, the Mediterranean world and the powers that are incorporated into it. So there's some select few powers that pr- crop up in this time period and assert dominance and have massive influence inside what modern day Europe is. Um, but the time period that we're looking at is between 1200 BC and the 6th century AD, which is the, f- the end of Justinian I's reign. So th- the main places and the main times that we're gonna be looking at is the Hellenistic period, the classical Greek period, the Roman period, and then you don't necessarily call this a period, but we're going to be looking at Egyptology as well, which is the study of the Egyptians. Um, it's uh, it's quite a strange uh, place where Egyptology lies. It's sort of in classics, but it's sort of more archaeological based as well. So it, uh, we will be discussing it because there are some really interesting points in there, and the Egyptian society is really complex and interesting anyway, so we will be discussing that, but it's not where the main focus lies. We're more about the classical period the Hellenistic period and the Roman period but the reason why this is interesting and these places are interesting and these societies that we're going to be talking about is interesting is because classics is important it's important to study because it puts the modern day into a perspective we can understand through these societies in the past and what actions they done and how they in- conducted themselves and how they worked really makes us understand how we as a society worked and how th- back then they set a base which we then worked upon throughout the years and moulded and changed to get to society where we are today. A great example of that is democracy. So democracy started in Athens you know, in a very primitive stage. But nowadays, it's in most of the Western world. But if it wasn't for Athens making this system of democracy, what would the world be like now? How, how, would, how would Britain, how would America, how would most of Europe, how would Australia, how would they change their ways of function as a society? You know, it's small little things that we have today that we don't really think about until we look back in ancient history and look at the classics and realise that we are not 
completely different to societies then. And it really does put an idea in what would happen if that was different? What would society be like now? And why is it therefore important that we look at what happened then to see what we have now? But it not only lets us look into the past to see what is now, what we have now. What it also does is it allows us to see how the world has evolved. You know, what good things about the past have we taken on? What bad mistakes have we thought, oh, we better not do that again. We should leave that there. You know, it's re- it is actually really, really interesting to see how society has adapted and evolved over the course of time. And then also how, how we've repeated ourselves. You know, how we have made humongous errors in the past, but we've been too short-sighted to change it, you know, and we've we've fallen down the same potholes once again. This is really interesting, and I think this is really interesting, and I hope you think this is interesting too, because this is what we're going to talk about. So, as this is our first podcast, I think it's only right we talk about the first event that I know of in the classical period. So, that would be from a poet named Homer, who, in the 7th to 8th century BC, got written down into two epic poems called the Odyssey and the Iliad. Now the Iliad is the older of the two and is probably the most easiest to date. So the Iliad is effectively a story about the siege of Troy and Troy is a city in the western part of Turkey and they believe they have found the actual siege of the city of Troy so we have to believe this is a historical occasion. Um, however the contents as we'll later discuss may not be truthful in its whole content, but we're going to believe that the, the siege happened, okay, and Troy is a real place. So it's thought that this siege happened around about the 10th century BC. But the important point is that this, these two epics are actually the first written accounts we have from the Greek world. And what's really interesting is that our first account is actually about the Greeks as a people going outside of Greece, that we call nowadays Greece, um, into other non-Greek places and interacting with them and um, getting involved in almost like a foreign policy as such. It's not a unified, you know, um, organisation, so it can't be policy as such, but you, you get my drift. But this idea of the Greeks going into the non-Greek world is actually really interesting and is really important because it seems that from Homer onwards, this this idea has been picked up and thrown about from lots and lots of different authors in the classical world. This idea of Greeks writing about non-Greeks to understand the Greeks is really prevalent. So effectively what it is, it's Homer talking about how the Greeks are going to the, the Trojans, but it gives us a really good look at how the Greeks worked and how their power dynamic worked and how they would interact with each other. You know, so we get really good Greek perspective from it. But this is carried on by later authors, such as Herodotus, who writes about the Persian Wars. And the book focuses on the Persian side, but you find out information about the Greeks. And so you get, you look out to look back in. It's also seen through Xenophon, who writes in his Syropaedia, that he looks at how the Persian Empire started under Cyrus the Great, and explains how Persian society works, by looking back inwards at the Greeks to see how different it is from the Greek society. So again, he looks out to look back in. And then you fast forward all the way to the Roman time period, and again, it crops up under Polybius. Polybius writes in his his book called The Histories, and he looks at how the rise of the Roman Empire 
happened and how Rome came to conquer the world. But he looks at how the state of Rome is and how they've had this humongous expansion and this power-driven society to see what the state of Greece is like. And again, so you look at how the Romans have done this, but it's come back to see what the state of Greece is and what Greeks are like now. So this theme does run through history quite a lot, and it is re- it does really set a tone that people want to adopt. And it all comes back to the, this person, Homer. He is the start of a lot of important things, and so it is, it is just that we, we talk about him. So let's get into the meat of it then. What does Homer teach us about Greek society? And really, the answer is a lot. So he gives us an insight into how glory works, how conflict works, how monarchies work, how rivalries in individual cities work. But he also develops an idea of how society sees poetry at the time. So let's first look at the impact of Homer on society and more specifically the reception by people of Homer. So it's clear that Homer sets a trend here and he sets a theme that is established and circulated throughout the Greek world. These epics are being consistently read and consistently produced and spoken to, to a large audience around Greece. That That, that is quite evident. But what's quite important is to realise that it's not just a text that we found that had importance at one point and then went away. It seems that Homer continued throughout generations and, and centuries to be still very prominent, very important. So an example of that is that you can see the style of his writing had influenced other generations such as Callimachus, Phreocritus, and Apollonius of Rhodes, and all of these people are poets themselves, um, but they, interestingly, are not from the Greek world as such, but are actually in an Egyptian court uh, under Ptolemy II. We'll get to that in another podcast, but I'll just sum up here that he's basically a Greek ruler in Egypt, and he's effectively pharaoh of Egypt. But the important thing of that is that you have maybe six centuries after uh, Homer has been written down, into into some books that his influence is still there and is still prominent and you can even see it all the way up into the roman period where you have people like virgil who's made an aeneid you know which literally follows the sea of troy so it's really interesting that how much of an influence he had on society in his time but of course there's always another thing to talk about the problems so there's the problems of oral tradition homer was basically a poem it was before it was written down in the 8th to 7th century BC, it would have been communicated. And so what you have to imagine is you have a big hall around you. You know, you may be in, in a person of the elites, which is basically someone who is the richest part of society. So you have a poet or a bard come in and effectively they would recite parts of stories to the audience. And it could take days. You know, let's say one book of the odyssey right because the odyssey is cut into cut into separate books one book could take two nights three nights to do the whole thing you know could take probably a month to recite by words so you have lots of parts of homer being spoken all across the world so then you really question of what bit of homer do we have would different accounts be made for different cities or different individuals if i preferred um to have more 
of a violent story told, would that poet and that bard then change it to be more towards violence or towards uh, military, that sort of thing? Would someone who's more involved in the romantic side get a different side of the story? So it makes you think that potentially when Homer was written down, you had 36, 25, who knows, but different versions roaming around the world of these stories. So that's 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 a problem with oral tradition you know what do we have the truth do we have do we have the real part of what the story intended so this also makes you wonder what 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 homer do we have you know do we have is is it one person called homer writing down the whole stories in one long thing and it's all set to be specifically created in this way and and hold the tales that it does and have the certain epithets for each character or is it maybe eight, a hundred, you know, 50 different Homers, people called Homer, who have sort of through time made the story bigger, made it it grow and change it, to then have this story which is made by Homer, but in fact it's, you know, 70 different tales and stories formed into one big long epic. And unfortunately we'll probably never know. but it is interesting to think about and it is worthwhile remembering while we go down this journey of what Homer teaches us because will will it change knowing that one person taught us all this or that it's actually society itself and lots of different parts coming together to give us a better understanding and I think that's really interesting. Leaving that aside though, let's look at the Iliad. So the Iliad is potentially the epic out of the two which is more historically based um so there is an idea that the sea should happen they think they found troy um you know i think it's still debated but i think probably about 90 percent sure that troy has been found it did exist and so the siege most likely did happen um so the siege happens loosely around 900 to 1000 bc as we've already discussed and the works are seemingly very old. But what's important is to know that it wasn't actually recorded right away. And as we said, Homer was composed between um, the 8th and 7th century BC. Um, so there is a good time difference between the siege and the writing of Homer that hasn't been recorded. So we have to take that in consideration when discussing it. But, but, but what is evident is that when you read the Iliad... It doesn't seem completely crazy. I mean, there is definitely some fantastical stuff in there. But there are accounts that may be true. There are accounts that I can definitely get behind, you know. So there are also characters who probably did exist and probably were around then, you know. But I think we have to take a pinch of salt because a lot of them are really glorified and really exaggerated in the characteristics to become almost like a a god themselves and into the mythology of of the story so we have to really take that easy but i think you know you know i'm sure there was really good soldiers like achilles like ajax you know we have you know people nowadays who stand out from everyone else and are great great soldiers and commanders and generals but and we see it all the way through history actually recorded people who are amazing but they are not just killed by an arrow to the Achilles heel. That's where it starts to go a bit a bit funny. Um, 
But I can definitely see there is a basis to see the Iliad has some facts and some truth. And I think that is important to explore. So let's quickly look at the character of Ajax, right? So Ajax is always second best to Achilles, yeah? So he's has he's an amazing fighter, he's an amazing general, he's an amazing leader, but he's not quite good as someone else. He's not quite good as Achilles with fighting. He's not quite good at this and X and X and X. You know what I'm saying. But I'm pretty sure that there could very easily be a character like Ajax who is an amazing guy, amazing fighter, an amazing leader, but there are limitations on him as well. You know, so... They, they, one of one of Ajax's big fins is that he has this shield that's big enough to block, you know, like forty menish. This is all estimates, you know. Don't count me for this as fact, but I'm just trying to remember what I've been reading before. But it's effectively he's got a giant shield and he can, you know, use that really good to his advantage uh, in defense. And I'm sure there was a guy running around called Ajax with a giant shield that really did help. But you know, it's this mythological implica- impl- implication that's been put on there that Ajax shield is not just there for a shield and has you know the capabilities of a man to wield it but it becomes a divine intervention moment where he can use it to completely change the sway of battle or something along those lines and limitations are what is potentially the problem of the Iliad and it is that there is ridiculous accounts inside of it when you try and look at it from a historical ancient history point of view not from a classical literature point of view but when you're looking at as trying to see what the Iliad tells us about society it's important to realize that this divine intervention these glorified elements for us seem crazy and they seem you know completely at times idiotic to idiotic to believe in you know nowadays you know the the, the equivalent for us would be do you believe in magic and most people would be like no i don't believe in magic yeah but we don't believe in magic because we know how magicians work it's a trick it's not it's not a play from a god or something like that or they don't have powers it's just a trick of the mind and it's a trick of the hands and they're, they're, they're there to fool you but what we've got to realise is that back then, they believed in gods. A group of gods called Zeus, Hera and Dionysus. That's the difference. They believed that these individuals really changed society and contributed to society and altered society. So from if you put yourself in their mindset, having divine intervention in the Iliad would probably seem quite normal. And they could probably believe that to be truth. So then there's a wider debate. Um, so not just on about like are certain people real, but it kind of brings the whole story into the mindset of what's going on here. So the purpose of the siege, could this really be real? Could two nations, well, I say nations loosely, can, can one city and a group of unified people really go to war over adultery depending on the account that you read either the start of the trojan war happened because paris was invited to menelaus's home which he is the uh, menelaus is the king of sparta and paris is the prince of troy that's really important um so it's either that menelaus invites paris to sparta and 
out of goodwill and a good deed. And while Paris is there, Helen and Paris fall in love and they end up eloping and going back to Troy. And by doing so, Menelaus is so enraged that he has just lost Helen because Helen is thought to be the most beautiful woman in the world, even at times challenging Aphrodite in in her beauty so this enrages Menelaus and sends him into a, a frenzy of emotion and eventually gets Agamemnon who is the king of Mycenae and he unifies all of the Greek people into a collective unit and goes to Troy to get Helen back and that, that's the start of the fin depending on the, the version though because there is another version where Paris isn't invited to Menelaus' uh, home in Sparta, but instead raids Sparta in a in a, a hostile attack, and ends up pillaging his home and taking and stealing Helen. Now this one, from a historical point of view, will have more of a more of a legitimate reasoning to start in a, a siege. The other one, on the other hand, where they elope because they fall in love, really does puzzle me. Because in a modern day sense, a war wouldn't be started over adultery. Now, saying that, I'm sure the capabilities of a war starting over adultery in modern days is, is probably there. But I think most people would be realistic enough to to think that's a bit ridiculous. Um, but, I mean, what's important to realise is that our society is very different to what it was back then. Potentially, you know... What we believe is right and wrong, and what they believe is right and wrong, are different. So this could have been uh, a reason to go to war. Me personally, I think it's I think it's I think it's wrong. Um, I don't think it's right. I don't think historically this would have occurred, but I accept that it could have. The other things that you know the, the the show the limitations in the Iliad is is how do we reflect on the length of the siege? This siege happened for ten years, where they were based on a beach outside the city's walls um i have never heard of a siege taking 10 years where you were constantly constantly there never leaving morale has never dropped <laughs> i mean at points yes it does talk in the iliad about how generals do get and leaders do get disgruntled at certain activities happening and stuff so that could affect their morale and their their, their will to fight but as a whole you know the, the length the length doesn't seem to affect them too much, which is again a bit a bit odd that we should consider when thinking about the legitimacy of the Iliad. Another strange thing that happens in the Iliad, which would have limitations on, is that Achilles, who's a very renowned soldier, uh, one of the best there, um, well, actually is the best there. Let's be honest. Um, he betrays Agamemnon's orders, who is his overlord, who is his own own leader, and decides to steal a priestess and have a relationship with a priestess um which you know went against orders and it's very again very confusing um yeah they're actions that we from a reader nowadays it wouldn't bring us any real emotion it wouldn't show us being heroic or anything like that it's something that i believe that would be interesting to see from a ancient point of view what does what do all these fins that i've just listed off 
how did they how are they perceived by the people of the time so when we when we so a couple of things i've just mentioned about the length of the siege we all think it's crazy how could this happen what would a person listening to this story in a banquet hall from a bard what would they think about this would they be saying again this is a bit crazy but it's just you know it's just a story or alternatively would they be there thinking wow that that was amazing you know they just had this 20 year siege we have the best soldiers ever you know the best generals ever it, it is it is interesting when you think about this um what would the audience believe and how would it affect them because we have to remember this story has been told for over hundreds of years how would that change their mindsets how would that teach them what their identity is what would it teach them about the greek civilization would it set any values would it set any traditions it is evident that these great epics set a precedent into the greek world and it it changed how authors write even in the roman period so what would it do to the everyday greek what what homer does is homer provides context doesn't he he provides context to how and why greeks act as they do it's really the iliad is the birth of ethnos and ethnos basically means greek identity under Agamemnon, you see an array of different Greek states and Greek cities uniting under one person to go and face Troy. And it's to go and retrieve Helen from Menelaus. That's, that's the original intent. But this is the first time we've ever seen a unification of Greek cities before. It is the first classical account that I know of, of the unifications. And... It's also the first account that I know of, of the identi identity of Greeks being established as civilised compared to the rest of the world. And how foreign people or foreign areas are considered barbaric, but Greece, mainland Greece and the Greek people are civilised. That's where you know, civilization has started in their, in their mindsets. So... And that, that in itself is a really crucial point because Greeks being civilised and everyone else being barbaric and uncivilised is an important theme and a key theme that sets a precedent for ideology for United Greece. But it also sets an idea of the further you go outside of the Greek world, the more un-Greek and uncivilised it becomes. And that's really shown very well for the other epic and that is the odyssey and i argue the odyssey is more of a story if you put the two epics together the iliad is history with myth like divine intervention mythology combined into it but the odyssey is purely a story but a story that shows us how greeks are and how they interact with each other and how they behave and that's all through the guy called odysseus so the Odyssey, we believe, was composed at the same time as the Iliad. So it's got the same same time of being created. Um, but one, there's many ways to look at the Odyssey. You can look through the mythological parts that it has. You can try and figure out the geography of Odysseus' journey. 
or you can do what I'm doing in probably the most boring way, <laughs> and that's to look at what it tells us about society and what um, what the Odyssey shows us about people, because I think that's really important. It's the Iliad shows us what Greeks are and what they do and how they are with others and who's civilized and who's not and that sort of thing. But I think what the Odyssey does is it expands on that and it shows what the Greeks are like, how would they interact, what do they what do they deem to be the right way to interact, what do they think is appropriate, what they think is not appropriate. Um, and a little hindsight, you can tell it's not what we think. <laughs> what they do and what we do, if we believe the Odyssey shows us this, and it shows us what an average Greek would believe compared to what we believe, is vastly different. So, the main character, Odysseus, uh, basically the Odysseus leaves Troy and he tries to get home to a place called Ithaca, where he is king of or ruler of and it takes him 10 years to arrive back in Ithaca and during this time period he goes on a massive adventure finding crazy people you know witches demigods uh, cyclopses men who eat fruit that are evidently drugs and try and kill everyone <laughs> he finds cattle that are the cows of the god of the sun um, he finds all these miraculous amazing things um, along this journey but although it has all these glorified elements it's effectively a story about anguish about desperation and being homesick Odysseus doesn't just need to get home he wants to get home really badly to his back to his wife Penelope so Odysseus acts and is perceived to have mannerisms that in modern day sense we would frown upon as such i mean not all the time but i think as a whole they're they're seen as negative traits so odysseus is conniving um he's scheming and he's quite misogynistic um and as i said in our society that's deemed inappropriate or offensive or frowned upon but what's interesting is it seems that in the greek perspective or at least if we believe that the Odyssey is a, homo uh, a heroic epic that paints Odysseus therefore as a hero, it would be perceived that these characteristics that we don't like actually benefit him in the story, and so would be seen as positive. Um, and therefore glorified, and so... It's a clear path between us and the contemporary listeners of the Odyssey, where we deem it inappropriate and they think it's actually really a positive thing to have. So Odysseus is essentially a hero. He's seen as heroic and, is, and in the, the Odyssey is celebrated for these actions. And you'd have to, you'd have to believe that the contem contemporary listeners and readers of the Odyssey would believe the same. And they would see it as heroic and therefore in a positive light, which would differ from us. Another aspect that the Odyssey holds that shows what Greek society believed is the mythological tradition. And I don't necessarily mean about how they believed in the uh, Olympic gods, um, which is, you know, Zeus and, and the rest of them. 
I'm more interested in the the, the notion of civilization that I discussed earlier about how being Greek is civilized and non-Greek is barbaric. Um, and it would it, it is definitely clear in the Odyssey compared to the Iliad because the Iliad you're you're stuck in one place effectively at Troy, but in Odyssey. Odysseus has room to move, and he goes from area to area to area. And it seems like the further he gets goes away, and the further lost he is. And I'm when I mean by uh, lost, I don't mean like he's potentially more lost because he's, he's lost at every single point, effectively, um, apart from a few. I mean lost as in uh, he's had one uh, altercation, escaped it, but ended up in another. So he's getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this um, this reoccurring theme of finding himself in horrific situations and this theme of finding himself into new places all the time and finding barbaric fins is really important because it's always places that are not does not have a greek influence in it's not part of the greek world so this theme of finding new monstrous beings the further he gets away from from home is also really important because it 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 really does show that Anywhere that the Greek influence isn't at or hasn't, the Greek world isn't there or what isn't part of the Greek world has the monstrous in it. So Troy is technically part of the Greek world um, as large part Western parts of Turkey was colonized by Greeks and they established uh, sort of colonies. At anywhere outside the ancient world has this theme of monstrous and barbaric society. Anywhere outside of the known Greek world seems to have this barbaric elements inside of their society. And Odysseus is uh, potentially the most major player in this time period that demonstrates this. Every place he goes to, there is people there who are evidently un-Greek and therefore uncivilized, And they are seen to have the intent to either kill, manipulate, or distract Odysseus from his task. And they give... Very little help. The only exception, I would say, would be uh, Calypso. Calypso is a demigod, uh, which he spends seven years at. And although he's technically there, imprisoned, he's there only because she desires to be with him. And he, she, wants, he, she wants him to forget about Penelope and spend her, his life with her. Because he, she loves him. And she has seemingly fallen in love with him. And... He doesn't express the same thing. It's even spoken inside the text that when there is intimacy between them, he is cold at heart. Um, There is, he doesn't want to be there. And that's the only abnormality that I would say doesn't exist in the outside of his adventures. However, you know, it is, it is, Calypso is, is a god, effectively, is a demigod, and so I think you have the other pass for that one. But every other occasion, it seems like there is an abnormality in their, in their personality, or in their looks, or in their behaviour. So we can evidently distinguish that all these monstrous things that have been happening is part of the myth- mythological tradition, and it is, in our eyes, not real. We've, we've understood that Mythology cannot be real. There was no cyclopses. There was no giants. There was none of these extreme, extravagant beings that existed then. You know, you didn't have cattle that that mooed after being slaughtered. It, it, it's crazy. But what's interesting is that we need to see, even though we believe this, 
would the Greeks, would the audience believe that at the time? You know, would they look at the Odyssey and think, oh, this is a, this is a story? Or would they think, like the Iliad, this is truthful? That's if they did think the Iliad is truthful. I would argue they probably would, or elements at least. So we have to take that into consideration. Um, and it is really interesting. And I don't think I can provide you with an answer. And I don't think... I don't think anyone can provide a, a full answer. I would suggest that they would presume that the monstrous is real. Um, it's, it is a theme that continues throughout Greek history for a while. Um, and it, it comes up in Herodotus as well, who's, a, who's an author, who's a, um, an author on sort of the Greek world and what is known. Um, and he speculates a lot of places in Egypt where there are people uh, who have real abnormalities in the way they behave and in their looks. Uh, so, for instance, they have one foot that they hop around on instead of having two legs. Um, uh, and some really, really crazy stuff going on there. I would really actually advise you, if you want to read some, Herodotus is probably a good way to start. So, overall, what will we actually learn from Homer? I believe we learn a bit, quite a bit from Homer about society. I think we learn that there was definitely a place for a Greek identity to emerge from. Um, I think it really does demonstrate that the Greeks, although we consider them to be really independent people, um, they're independent policies, there was a sense that they knew they were a collective being as such, although different and independent, they could see themselves as Greeks and outsiders none um and so it's perfectly seen through troy troy's not greek but they are and so they unify against that and i'm talking more about an a, a, an ideology here and an idea not so much about them saying they would unify uh, uh, politically or anything like that i'm just saying that they there is that space available in the homeric tradition that shows that the Greeks know they are Greeks, and they know non-Greeks are not Greeks, and they are not as good as Greeks. But it also shows us that Homer really does set a trend that is adopted throughout history, uh, especially within writers. You see that there are people in the Ptolemaic court still using his style of looking out to look in. There is Thucydides who does that. He's very impactful on the progression of literature inside um, antiquity as a whole. Um, not just a Greek period, not just a Roman period, not just a Hellenistic period, but he transcends through periods and through generations and really creates his own tradition himself, uh, which is really important. And by these two points, you can see how Homer has affected society. He changes the way that society will work. Through, th through the literature, you can see he's, he's influenced a huge generation of um, writers and fundamentally changes the direction of how people were going to write and their styles if homer wasn't there would we have these people writing as they do i i would argue no you wouldn't you wouldn't because it is set with homer if the if the iliad and the odyssey were slightly different in their stylistic behaviors or their content was different perhaps we would not it would not be as big as it was and will not be influential as it was, and we will not have the knock-on effect throughout literature uh, to modern day that progressed because of this. 
Um, but also, the one that we're also really, really going to uh, focus in on uh, later on in another podcast is that idea of the Greek identity. He he really does create this Greek identity here, or at least this is the first time we see it. Um, and it's really important because the unification of Greece does occur not that far past this time period. Where Xerxes I, the leader of the Persian Empire, marches across the Hellespont and invades Greece. And it's at this point that Greece does what they did in Troy and the Greek people unite to one collective being and fight the Persian Empire. They stop being individual policies such as Athens and Sparta with their own, own different mindsets and their own goals and their interfighting politics. But instead they combine into one and they unite under the identity of being Greek to fight off the Persians who are non-Greek. And that is what our next podcast will be on. If you found this podcast interesting, then I would really recommend you go and read this book. It's called The Mighty Dead, Why Homer Matters. And it is a book about why Homer matters in society. And it's really interesting. I've used a lot of the basis of my arguments uh, that have come from this book. Thank you very much for listening.